Can a member of a limited liability company be expelled by his or her fellow members? Can it be done without going to court? Can it be done by a judge, and if so, under what circumstances? Should expulsion or disassociation, as it's also called, be authorized in the LLC's operating agreement? Hi, I'm Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer and partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. And in this episode six of the Business Divorce Roundtable, I pose these questions and many more on the topic of LLC member expulsion to Tom Rutledge, one of the country's leading experts on closely held business entities, including LLCs. Tom has a law practice as partner with Stoll Keenan Ogden in Louisville, Kentucky, where he concentrates on business organization law and, like me, co-owner disputes. Tom's expertise in LLC law goes beyond client matters. He's been a key player in drafting a slew of legislative acts in his home state of Kentucky in the area of business organizations, including that state's LLC Act and its partnership laws. Tom has authored many, many scholarly articles published in various law journals on alternative business entities, and he's testified as an expert witness on the operation of LLCs and fiduciary duties. He's also chair of the ABA Business Law Section's Committee on LLCs, Partnerships, and Unincorporated Entities. As part of his committee work, Tom's organized in recent years a phenomenal annual event called the LLC Institute held in Washington, D.C., which I've attended the last two years and will be going again this coming fall. You can learn more about the LLC Institute from Tom himself at the end of our conversation. Tom also is a fellow blogger. You can catch his post at the Kentucky Business Entity Law Blog. Apart from his law-related activities, Tom is a history buff and can be counted on for entertaining posts about the anniversaries of many obscure and not-so-obscure historical events. I'm very lucky to call Tom my friend, and I hope you, too, have the opportunity to meet him at the LLC Institute or the many other bar association events he's involved in. I give you Tom Rutledge. Tom, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. Peter, thank you very much. Glad to be here with you. I was for a while, Tom, looking for some excuse to get you onto this podcast. You gave me that excuse recently. I saw your article published in the Journal of Pass-Through Entities on a topic that uh, I love to, to follow, expulsion of LLC members. Your article is called, It's Not Me, It's You, Planning for Expulsion of Members from LLCs. The article talks about non-judicial expulsion of LLC members in accordance with the provisions of an operating agreement. Is that is that correct? Yeah, very much so. For those who are not as familiar with LLCs as certainly you are, can you explain why is that even a topic for LLCs? For instance, when I think of your traditional business corporation, the idea that some of the shareholders can kick out one of the other shareholders sounds so alien to me, something that I would not encounter. I mean, perhaps I'd see a shareholders agreement that that has buy-sell provisions that can be triggered by certain events, but I can't recall ever seeing in a shareholders agreement of a business corporation an expulsion provision, uh, other than for ha- perhaps a professional corporation where there are licensing requirements. So so why is this a topic for LLCs? What makes them different? Peter, I think you've identified the, uh, the disconnect. At one end of the spectrum, we've got the classic business corporation in which traditionally you get your shares and you are a shareholder until you die. 
um, or you sell your shares. And then we step in and there's the PSC where they said, yeah, you're a shareholder, but you've got to be licensed in the profession. And if you're not licensed in the profession, we can redeem your shares as the typical model. Of course, in the classic business corp, we, you just alluded to, we now sometimes have buy-sell agreements. And it might say, if you cease to be an officer of the company, actively employed with the company, we get to buy your shares back. But that's just pure contract. At the other end of the spectrum, there's the classic general partner which a partner could dissolve at will. A partner just gets sick and tired of dealing with somebody for whatever reason. They say, I'm dissolving the partnership that winds up, terminates. The partners go their way, but they've each been cashed out. If that's the other end of that spectrum, st- take a step back and you've got the LLC, which is has certain characteristics traditionally of corporate law, certain traditional characteristics of partnership law. But after check the box was adopted, we did away in essentially every state. I say essentially, I'm pretty sure it's every state, but I can't say I've read every statute to look for the point. That you don't have the right to withdraw from the company and get away from other people, uh, which is what you had under partnership law. So now you've got the problem of everybody's locked in place together unless you think about and put in your agreement when we just don't get along or whatever it might be, that there's a way to separate the relationships without having to go seek judicial dissolution of the company, which, of course, destroys all the goodwill. And we don't want that to happen. So that's the challenge that needs to be addressed in the operating agreements. I guess in theory, you could have an expulsion provision in a shareholders agreement of a traditional closely held business corporation, couldn't you? Yes, I believe you could. I don't see those. Do you come across those in closely held business corporations? You know, Peter, anymore, I see very few closely held companies anymore being set up because we're more LLCs, but I think conceivably it could be there. What I'd like to talk with you about are both what I've just called non-judicial expulsion of LLC members, and then I want to spend some time talking with you also about judicial expulsion of LLC members. For the uninitiated, What's how would you define the difference between judicial and non-judicial expulsion? The first distinction in my mind for judicial expulsion of a member is that the terms and conditions required for that to happen are defined by statute versus being defined by the private ordering in the operating agreement. Second, it's going to require the involvement of a court, which is going to probably be both slow and expensive. Conversely, non-judicial expulsion is going to be a matter of private ordering in the operating agreement, perhaps with some constraints set by the controlling statute. But there, the members are going to be able to write what is particular to their deal. And there's a variety of situations they might want to talk about. Professional practices we've mentioned already have particular rules. But one I mentioned in the article that you've already discussed, what happens when you have a business that has uh, liquor licenses? And there are particular rules as to, for example, DUIs by the owners of the company. You're going to have to address that by private statute isn't going to step in and help you there. And there can be a variety of situations like that. That's just an easy one to uh, to toss out. I think you've set the stage very well. So let's 
let's jump a little deeper now into the non-judicial expulsion, which is, as, as you've described it, a creature of the private ordering as set forth of the, of the members as, as contained in their operating agreement. Is it necessary that the state law governing the LLC affirmatively authorize the inclusion of a non-judicial expulsion provision in the operating agreement? I don't think so. Just about every operating, I'm sorry, every LLC act already provides words to the effect that these are the default rules, but whatever the members of the LLC define as their private agreement, that will be controlling what Dan Kleinberger has referred to as the agreement as, as God rule. So I believe you have the authority to do that. Of course, there may be individual constraints as to particular provisions as to what a court would or would not enforce later on. We can all think of easily, you know, pernicious provisions that we would not expect a court to give any credence to. Conversely, if it goes to legitimate business matters, if it goes to licensing, if it goes to the ability of the company to achieve its economic ends, I would expect the court to enforce those rules. Now, what if an operating agreement of the LLC has no provision in it for expulsion of a member? Could, for instance, a majority of the members simply vote to expel a member, another member in the absence of such provision? There's a couple cases that stand for the proposition that if it's not given to you by statute and it's not in your operating agreement, you do not have the right to expel a member. That then leads to the question, which might be the next step of your your um, inquiry, can whatever is the required threshold of the members amend the operating agreement after the fact to put in place an expulsion mechanism and then trigger it? That sounds like a complicated affair. Have you seen that tested in the courts? That has actually been done. And um, coincidentally, I have an article coming out next year in the Florida Journal of Business Law with my co-author, Catherine Sagan. We've tried to collect all those cases and reviewed the challenges to that being done. But for example, there's a well-known case called Bushi. It was a medical practice and the majority, which were allowed to amend the controlling agreements, they amended the agreement to provide an expulsion mechanism and then they triggered it against Dr. Bushi. And in that case, court said, initially it said, yes, you can do that. The case was ultimately mediated out, so we don't have a final ruling. Another example, there was the um, Cadwallader versus Beasley case a number of years ago where Cadwallader was shutting down its Florida office. Cadwallader was dinged for in excess of $3 million in that case, but in the decision, the judge said you could have just amended the operating agreement under subparagraph O of your partnership agreement to create an expulsion mechanism, clearly indicating, at least to me, that the judge thought you could midway through the relationship, change the rules, put in place an expulsion mechanism, and then apply it. Uh, Are you talking about a retroactive application? In other words, member A does something the others consider bad on a Monday, and then on a Tuesday, by whatever necessary majority, the other members amend the operating agreement to include an expulsion provision. Can that expulsion provision now be applied retroactively to what occurred the day before. 
certainly that has happened in the past. That's exactly what happened, for example, in the Bushi case. By the way, uh, you mentioned Florida before, which reminded me that some years ago, I had done a blog post in which I mentioned a Florida case called Frungian, F-R-O-O-N-J-I-A-N. My recollection of the holding in that case was that even without any explicit authorization in the operating agreement for member expulsion, simply by virtue of the majority voting power that they possessed, the majority members were upheld in their non-judicial expulsion of a member. I remember I commented in my blog piece that that seemed to be the polar opposite of the law, the case law in New York, where pretty much that same question was presented and decided exactly in the opposite direction. Have you seen any other cases from perhaps other parts of the country uh, dealing with that issue? Uh, Yeah, the the case you mentioned from Florida is kind of curious. In that case, the majority, and it's not clear to me whether the judge was really analyzing this as just a resolution adopted by the majority or whether they were viewing the resolution as adopted constituted an amendment to the operating agreement. And whether that's a distinction without a difference is something that we're going to have to investigate in future years. Also, in that case, there's a weird backstop on it. The the Florida Act had essentially appraisal rights. In that case, the members, the majority members, both effected the dissolution, the um, dissociation of the other member, and then set the buyout price. And the court wasn't going to enforce the buyout price provision because it differed from what the statute would have provided for, which was a fair value buyout. So that's a second step that you have to consider as to if you can expel somebody, what are they entitled to? There's actually been very few cases on this across the country. My guess is that it actually happens all the time, and I've certainly in my practice been involved in them. They're just not yielding appellate decisions that we can uh, reference, either because they work out a buyout price and everybody walks away, or they're all being handled in arbitration. Tom, in your recently published article in the Journal of Pass-Through Entities, you launch it from the perspective of LL- as what I consider to be really a, a question of LLC planning. That is, whether the members and those who counsel them at the inception of the LLC when preparing their operating agreement, even though perhaps they're now in the bloom of love, should be looking further down the road and thinking about the perhaps, one would say, inevitable possibility that one or more members is going to have to depart under less than amicable circumstances. And you propose that they should consider inclusion of an expulsion provision in the operating agreement. Is that a fair characterization of the launching point of your article? Yeah, that that's entirely fair. I'll tell you, I spend ridiculous amounts of my time either writing or reading operating agreements. One of the few truisms I think I've developed is that nobody reads the operating agreements until the relationship starts to break down. As long as everybody's getting along and everybody's making lots of money, they really don't care what's in that 20, 40, 60 page document. It's only when things go bad that they start looking at it. And that document at that point in time needs to give them answers 
processes, procedures that will help the venture move forward without being destroyed. So this that's one of the reasons you need to think about this problem. I'm, I'm curious if, if you've had experiences where you've been engaged to represent the LLC or multiple members of the LLC in preparing the operating agreement and you sit down with them. Do you have that conversation with them and are clients generally receptive to it? I start off the discussions with an explanation that the operating agreement is going to need to address the good and the bad. And they all show up, they, the clients, they show up and they've got their sharing ratios figured out and they know who's going to have which title. They may have some other operational issues. And that's, of course, going to be incorporated in the document. I think it's the council's obligation to think about the bad things and provide some rules in the owner's manual letter that goes back with the draft operating agreement, point out this addresses this, this addresses this. We didn't sit down and talk about it, but see if you like these rules. I don't think it needs to be front and center, but I think it's something that the attorney needs to take care of in the general background of writing the operating agreement, just as much as it is writing and hopefully understanding all of the tax provisions, the issues dealing with dissolution and all the other mechanical stuff. That's really the Scrivener's job. The idea of expelling a member, I would imagine, would strike anyone going into the LLC who does not have control as an extremely harsh remedy. And if they're going to have that conversation, they're also going to want to know, well, what happens if I do get expelled? Do I get a pile of cash? What happens to my interest? Is that part of the conversation you would have also? Again, typically in my situation, that'd be part of the owner's manual explanation of the agreement. It, it may or may not be highlighted in a live conversation, because seldom in my case do I ever end up in the same room with all the potential. But it, it may be different, and it may be highlighted, for example, returning to the article, if I'm meeting with a group of people who are all opening a restaurant or a chain of restaurants with liquor licenses, I'm going to highlight the fact that if you, potential member, do something that impacts on the ability to hold the liquor license, you are going to be out of here because I want them to be remembering to call Uber rather than drive themselves home. Again, in a multi-member, and let's define that as for the moment as three or more members because in a moment I'm going to come back to a a two-member 50-50 LLC. But in a multi-member LLC where you have one or more non-control minority interest holders, why would the conversation be in terms of an expulsion provision as opposed to simply talking about a a buy-sell with defined triggers? Probably more one of nomenclature than anything else, Peter. I mean, I could write it that in the event of A, B, or C, you will cease to be a member and you will be redeemed as provided in paragraph whatever it is, 8.7. Whether using the word expulsion or anything else like that is necessary, I don't know. Yeah, I guess this gets us really into a discussion of of what are the triggers because when we talk about expulsion, I assume we're going to be talking about triggers involving what I'll just generically call bad acts by a member, which is not the typical trigger for a buy-sell, I don't think, in my experience. Are there arguments against including expulsion provisions in the operating agreement? Let me just add my own thoughts about that, and then I'll give the floor back to you. Because I remember one of the very first blog uh, articles that I posted involving a case 
of majority member expulsion of minority member. It was based on breach of a expulsion provision that triggered expulsion by a material breach of the operating agreement. And as you know, sometimes a material breach of an operating agreement is in the eye of the beholder. And it, of course, the, I knew about that case because it did, of course, go to court and the minority member challenged that he had engaged in any breach of the operating agreement that would authorize uh, or trigger the expulsion provision. As best as I could tell from that case and maybe one or two others I've seen, the alleged bad acts seemed to be taking place after there was already a falling out between the two members, which suggests that there is certainly the possibility of a pretextual use of the expulsion power by the majority or controlling member who has the power to invoke it. And so my thought on that is putting in a expulsion provision where you have a majority-minority setup, does that provide the wrong incentives? And does it open the door to oppression and abusive use of an expulsion provision? I think the the challenge is always there. You need to carefully consider the particular circumstances and write for that deal and don't cut and paste boilerplate from another deal over. There is a marked distinction between a minority investor in a small manufacturing company than there is the relationship amongst a group of accountants. So careful drafting for that situation is going to be necessary, defining what does and does not constitute grounds. For example, if you've got a passive minority investor in a manufacturing company and an apartment complex, they have no involvement in management. What are you going to be expecting them to have fiduciary duties to begin with? Why should that be a trigger mechanism? Conversely, a CPA losing their license or being publicly charged in a community with some crime involving moral turpitude, that could be a different situation. Also, in the drafting vein, okay, you want to expel a minority member from the manufacturing company. That probably requires a different valuation formula than kicking somebody out of an accounting firm. Perhaps in that case, they should be paid fair value, whereas somebody uh, being forced out of an accounting firm that's now had to bear some public disdain, maybe you would pay them out for a fair market value and then discounted further adjustment. That way, if you have to force somebody to pay, for example, fair value in cash right away, that pressures against them pulling the trigger and expelling somebody on a whim. Let's talk about what I consider to be a typical setup where you have multiple members of an LLC, all of whom are actively involved in the business. The operating agreement may not spell out in any significant detail what their respective job duties are, even if it gives them some titles. It's a friendly coming together of people who know and trust one another. They're going to include a provision that authorizes member expulsion, sort of the abandonment of one's duties, even though they're not defined in the in the operating agreement. I mean, I've seen this many times where, for whatever reason, a member simply abandons the LLC. They stop performing whatever services that they had been, been performing previously. Would that be an appropriate ground for expulsion if you, if the members are, are including an expulsion provision in their operating agreement? I think it would. Of course, it would be better if they would define in the operating agreement under member duties. You know, you will come to work, you'll perform 
40 hours of service every week and in furtherance of the business. But even if they don't do that, yes, I think that's a situation where everybody's relying on the ongoing contribution. And I believe it's North Carolina that has a curious provision that actually allows you to expel a member because they've essentially abandoned their interest other than the economic. So again, that's a situation where you've got a particular fact pattern, which you've described as a particularized answer for that fact pattern. And what about, I, I mentioned this, I don't think I referenced the name of the case the, that I blogged about. It was a New York case involving a Delaware LLC, Jane J.A.I.N. against Rasta. And, and that was the case in which the majority controlling member ousted the minority member for under an expulsion provision for a material breach of the operating agreement, which is a fairly open-ended criteria uh, for her expulsion. Is that, uh, would you recommend for or against inclusion of that type of uh, a trigger event? I find that one very difficult. On the one hand, if people are violating the organic documents, yes, you should be able to expel them. And that, of course, was also issue in the the well-known All Saints case that we'll be talking about uh, shortly. But on the other hand, it's very difficult and it's always open to debate whether somebody has violated the terms of an agreement. You're going to fight over whether there's been a breach. And that's, again, going to be time intensive and expensive as well. So the the more objective the criteria, the less the odds are that it's going to end up in a prolonged litigation. Absolutely. If if you do not clock in for 40 hours a week for three weeks in a row, we can expel you. Versus if you don't devote your full time and energy to the company. We certainly want you to do the latter, but that's rather difficult to measure. Tom, let's spend a couple of minutes uh, before we move on to judicial expulsion talking about the consequences of an expulsion as you would expect to see it laid out in an operating agreement we're talking about now. I mentioned this before. What happens? Do they forfeit their interest? Are they getting compensated for the value of their interest? Is the compensation fair? How do you deal with that from the standpoint of a transactional attorney who is sitting down with multiple members now planning that provision? The first two options come up in in that situation, Peter, are the expelled member becomes a mere assignee of their ownership interest, so they retain their economic rights, their rights to interim and liquidating distributions of the company, but they lose the right to inspect books and records, enforce fiduciary duties, have a voice in future amendments to the operating agreement, etc. So they're kind of now in a limbo. The other alternative is we're going to do a full redemption, buy out your interest, disconnect us from you. Um, And then there's, of course, going to in that situation be a valuation issue unless there's a predetermined formula that is quite well written. Of course, if you go with the option of buying somebody out, the company's capital base is now going to be depleted to the extent of whatever the buyout price is. Yes, it can be over time. Yes, it can be with a promissory note, everything we've ever done with buy-sell agreements. But that can be a problem under a variety of issues, such as they don't have the money. Or there may be bank loan covenants that preclude uh, redemptions. So the challenge is, again, it's going to be writing what is best for that company. Conversely, I would say if you are redeeming the dentist investor from the apartment complex deal, 
and he or she becomes a mere assignee, I'm not sure that's bad because they didn't have many more rights beyond that to begin with. I mean, what I've seen in the few encounters I've had with expulsion provisions is that in some instances, the terms of the expulsion and particularly the terms of a buyout, whether it's the amount to be compensated or the terms of the compensation or the inclusion of a non-compete provision along with the expulsion, sometimes they take on a punitive aspect, particularly when the trigger for the expulsion is an alleged material breach of the operating agreement or some other defined bad act. Is this a phenomenon that you've encountered where we're coming across punitive terms for a buyout? I've been asked many times, we want to kick somebody out and we don't want to give him anything or, or some different flavor of that. That's highly problematic. I think you can agree to that ab initio when the agreement was originally written, but trying to impose something like that, I think, has problems. If you write a provision that is essentially a punishment for a breach of contract, most state courts will not enforce that. They will not participate in in that. The analysis in some ways resembles what you would come across when planning the terms of a buyout in an ordinary buy-sell provision as well. I mean, as you mentioned, you don't want to jeopardize the business or capital base of the company, so you may have to include a a long-term payout. The security terms have to be dealt with. Interest, all those things have to be dealt with in the shareholders agreement or operating agreement as well. The other thing, another point to be concerned about, Justin, remember an operating agreement is just a contract. Uh, Generally, courts will not enforce penalty clauses for breach of contract. I'm thinking of of a hypothetical scenario, Tom, where an expulsion provision is tied to a buyout at book value in an operating company whose value really is uh, reflected more in its goodwill. You know, that's not an unusual circumstance, yet does it not provide an incentive for the controlling member or members to, to use the expulsion provision to their own financial advantage? I certainly think that in a situation like that, they, they are over time as the company increases in value, they're incentivized to pull the trigger and therefore increase their relative equity stake in that in that uh, high that's getting bigger. And, but and if from the perspective of the minority, I guess, should they be able to challenge a valuation that says uh, the majority can expel me and redeem my interest for book value? Book value doesn't really capture the fair value of the company. Well, yes, that's true. But you see, you entered into an agreement that said you could be bought out for book value. And I didn't know what book value meant. Well, that's kind of your problem. And I'm not sure that their court should step in and and review that. So the minority members need to focus upon what the agreement says and what can happen to them and how their interests will be valued if and when they are separated from the venture. Let's shift gears now and spend a few minutes talking about judicial expulsion. The conversation about judicial expulsion has just gotten a whole lot more interesting as a result of a decision by the Supreme Court of New Jersey last week in a case called IE Test. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but before we get into the case, judicial expulsion, you explained at the, at the beginning, is pursuant to statute. question to you is, are such statutes 
prevalent uh, across the country or only in certain states. I'm generally aware that states that have adopted the revised Uniform LLC Act have in that act a judicial expulsion provision. I'm not sure if that applies in all RULCA states or just some RULCA states. What, what do you know about that, Tom? It certainly set forth in Rolka, and there was a predecessor form in, in Olka. I do not know any states that have adopted one of those statutes but deleted that provision. Conversely, the states that used the prototype LLC Act or just wrote a one-off act, as did Delaware, generally speaking, they're not going to have an expulsion mechanism. Last, last time I checked, there were 16 states in the District of Columbia that have adopted Rolka. If if you're correct, all 16 of those states have some form of the judicial expulsion statute, correct? Yes, sir. All right. So the, the grounds for judicial expulsion include elements that involve bad acts or wrongful conduct by an LLC member, but also acts that would not be considered wrongful. Is that is that right? Yes, that's true. For example, just the breakdown between the interpersonal relationship of the members that may make it not practicable to carry on the business. Nobody's really at fault there. The people just don't get along. And it could be it could be a rise out of anything. And almost any, you know, that's the problem with people. They're in, they're, you can't make predictions. You've used the phrase not reasonably practicable, which is also found in the provision for judicial dissolution of LLCs, I believe in most, if not all states, correct? Yes. So why, if members are simply not getting along and we're not dealing with a case of breach, why should one member have the right to throw the other out simply because the two of them are not getting along? It's especially challenging in a two-member 50-50 LLC as to which or either should have that capacity. And that fact pattern may require different drafting. Perhaps in a situation like that, you would want to eliminate the right of either member to trigger the expulsion of one member and allow it to go to judicial dissolution and resolve it that way. That also raises a related question of, under the statute, who has standing to go into court and ask to expel a member? Under the uh, formula used in the ROLCA, and it's also the formula used in the revised Prototype Act, the, it may be brought by either the LLC itself or by any member. Of course, that could be modified, I believe, in your operating agreement. If you've got a large group, maybe you want at least two or three of the members to have to agree. And, and that is the ROLCA provision a default rule or mandatory? It's a default rule, and it can be... Uh, it could conceivably be eliminated in the operating agreement. I think there's some questions as to its modifiability. Uh, for example, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think if you have a large LLC, I think you could redefine the threshold for who can bring the action, not just one member, but let's say it has to be three members. I think it's open to question to how much you can modify the standards that the court would apply, because this is a, the legislature giving a court jurisdiction to assess certain questions. And that question would arise whether the operating agreement purports to either heighten or diminish the criteria or the rigor of the criteria for judicial expulsion. Correct, Peter. For example, in, in one case, they talk about conduct that materially affects could you drop the materially threshold? I, at this point, I'd answer to that. Now, you mentioned the two-member 50-50 LLC and how that would play out here. I do believe that there are some states, and I'm thinking of New Jersey because it came up in the IE uh, test case that we'll talk about in a moment, 
that when New Jersey enacted the revised Uniform Act, they dropped the reference to members having standing to seek judicial expulsion of a member, and it's limited to the company. Absent some extraordinary provision in the LLC agreement of a two-member 50-50 LLC in New Jersey anyway, seemed that one member could not have standing to bring an action in the name and right of the LLC to expel the other member. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think the challenge there is going to be... First rule, of course, you have to go look at each individual state's act because they've modified them in, in different areas, and so many of those changes are idiosyncratic. Though. Could one member bring a derivative action on behalf of the LLC to seek the expulsion of the other? There's always going to be games, plays that people can make with respect to all these rules. The courts are going to have to assess them. Wow, that's that's an interesting setup. I, I, that would be fascinating to see how that plays out in the courts. I, I haven't seen one like that, have you? I have not seen it, but that doesn't mean somebody won't try it tomorrow. Well, there hasn't been, at least from what I could tell, there hasn't been a whole lot of case law across the country involving judicial expulsion. I think the comments to the Rolka provision mention a couple of cases involving judicial expulsion cases based on what I'll, again, what I'll call the bad act sections of the provision. And then you have New Jersey, which seems to be the only state where I've seen some decisions dealing with judicial expulsion based on the not reasonably practicable standard that you mentioned before. Are you aware of any other cases from other states involving judicial expulsion under that prong of the statute? I am not. I can't say I've done a complete sweep, but most of the cases other than the two New Jersey cases have really talked about can you do it versus whether the standard for doing it has been satisfied. Why is IE test and such an important case? I think IE test, let me just draw a contrast to the All Saints case with the Aruba Hospital. All Saints is really, really bad facts. People engaged in self-dealing transactions and people owning interest in competing ventures, etc. And now after three decisions, the last one just came down last week, you know, we kind of have a handle on how that works. But if we see facts like that again, we're doing something wrong. The IE test case involved a small dispute over going forward in a company and Carol, the member who was expelled, saying, hey, I'd like to get compensated for this. And the other members say, no, we don't want to. But then they kind of spun that out and said, because we've told him no on something he asked for, and he apparently, based on the record, never complained about it again. They spun that out and said, oh, the relationship is breaking down and we need to effect a, a separation. The LLC moved to expel Carol. The trial court granted that then went up to the appellate division of New Jersey, which upheld that. And then it went on to the New Jersey Supreme Court, which in a very well-written decision, in my view, reversed the determination and said that no, the grounds were not in this instance satisfied. Not not on summary judgment anyway. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they're going to have, you know, it's being remanded back. I think the more important thing about the IE test case is not so much applying the standard, although that is certainly important, and this is language that's used in many states. Carol was expelled, the the move move to expel him began in 2010. It was granted by the trial court. It's now been appealed up through two levels. It's now 2016, and we're going back to the trial court now for a review on the merits. 
I have no idea what sort of mess that is. Presumably, the company has been treating Carol as not a member for the last two years, which means no tax allocations have been made to it. Now they've said, no, you never really were expelled. We're back to the trial court. This just highlights, in my mind, the importance of doing this well and by contract and not having to rely upon the judicial dissolution provisions when they do exist. Interesting. I hadn't thought of the the tax aspect, but you're 100% right on that. Both you and I, by the way, have already posted our thoughts uh, and uh, analysis of the IE test case on our respective blogs. And I've already, in in the intro, of course, mentioned your Kentucky Business Entity Law blog, and, and I would certainly encourage all listeners to check that out and read about IE test and other uh, cases and things Tom's written about. But my takeaway from that case is that there seemed to be a deliberate policy-based effort by the New Jersey Supreme Court to, in its own words, set a high bar for application of the not reasonably practicable prong of the judicial expulsion statute. Do you see it any different? No, I think that's very accurate. The court set forth a six or seven factors that they would look at in in determining this. And I think that's a very good list. And it's a a practice guide of the members, a group of the members come to counsel and say, we want to expel Larry for whatever reason. You can work down that list and see really whether the standard is going to be satisfied. But certainly not reasonably practical requires more than we dislike somebody or we have a concern that someday there will be a problem. You're going to have to show a real problem as of that time under the test they've enunciated. Now, Rulka does not, if I'm correct, include a provision linked to judicial expulsion of an LLC member that also authorizes the court to compel a buyout of the expelled member. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And that was very much one of the issues in the All Saints case, particularly in its second decision from the appellate division, that ab initio effect of being expelled from an LLC is that you become an assignee. Now, the All Saints case makes clear that even though buyout is not the necessary consequence of an expulsion, a court on the right facts exercising its equitable powers can require a buyout. In the case that we see that from time to time in the case of corporations where courts exercising their equitable powers will require a buyout. But here, the All Saints Court said that even though the statute doesn't require a buyout in the end, I am going to do it because you all have to get away from one another. And it just so happens that you all, who I've identified as the bad actors, will be paid out at a valuation of zero. The court had to really engage in some some contortions to get to that result. For instance, on the first round in the first appeal, they specifically, both the trial court and the, and the first appellate decision upheld the expulsion of actually a 53% pair of members. They specifically rejected expulsion on the grounds that they had engaged in any wrong, you know, wrongful conduct and rested it solely on the not reasonably practicable prong. They're not getting along, as you've described it, prong of the statute. And then when it went back down to the lower court and the lower court is trying to figure out what to do now, is is the expelled member an assignee, as you described, or something else? Should there be a, a forced buyout? It then had to 
reached back into the bag of allegations, and now it comes forward. And on appeal, it was a, it was upheld that the expelled members had engaged in some breaches of fiduciary duty, which therefore, as a matter of equity, justified a compelled buyout. Did that strike you as as stretching it? The Definitely by the second, and, and no question in the third, the court realized that they had phrased the remand poorly and had inadvertently deprived the trial court of the ability to really step back, consider the situation, and figure out how to fully effectuate the separation. They definitely reached back into, to use your term, reached back into the bag in order to pull out the bad acts in order to justify the expulsion later on under equity, all of which is really good information for transactional attorneys to carefully read these cases and understand what they're doing when they write the operating agreement to begin with, because you don't want to keep having to go back and forth to a court to ask them what we can do and how can we do it. That's not efficient. It's not a good use of anybody's time or energy. Uh, these companies have business to do and they don't want to have their lawyers on speed dial. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, if it doesn't settle, of course, what happens in IE test on remand. Were the trial court to eventually on remand determined, perhaps after a trial, that the plaintiffs in that case had met the standard for not reasonably practicable to expel Carroll, that would put that court in a bit of a bind in terms of now what happens to Carroll. And again, I think reading the two cases together is important because All Saints deals with the expulsion of active participants in the venture, i.e. test with Carol. Carol was merely a passive investor in the company. He'd been active in a predecessor company, but in this company, he was passive. The case says he participated on one sales telephone call and apparently discharged everything he could have done there. It's, It's a good contrast and a good comparison. New Jersey, perhaps a more enlightened legislature, uh, in any event, I do believe when it enacted its version of ROLCA, it added a non-conforming provision that expressly authorizes the court to order a compulsory buyout upon a finding of judicial expulsion. So that would solve that problem for New Jersey anyway. Well, Tom, listen, this has been a fascinating discussion. Before we sign off, and I've already mentioned it in my introduction to this interview, but I'd love to hear from you as well. You have been in a leadership role with the LLC Institute, which I've had the the pleasure and privilege of attending. It's an annual event. I've attended the last two LLC Institute programs down in Washington. I think our listeners would love to hear it from you, why it's such an important program and and why they ought to join us there. The LLC Institute is uh, sponsored by the Section of Business Laws Committee on LLC Partnerships and Incorporated Entities. And I'm the incumbent chair, which will uh, end this September. I'll be handing the reins over. But the LLC Institute was started now five years ago by our former chair, Scott Ludwig, and it is meant to bring together for two days the top academics and practitioners who are involved in LLCs particularly, but we do talk about partnerships, limited partnerships, S-corporations, etc., And we try to do it at the highest possible level. Last year, we did a program just to throw it out on S-Corporation LLCs. One of our presenters was Professor McMahon, Florida. And in a room full of experts, everybody wrote down everything he could say. 
but we always have the top presenters on cutting edge topics. And for example, you'll walk into the room and you'll sit down and sitting over on one side will be Bob Keating, the author of one of the leading treatises on LLCs. Carter Bishop and Dan Kleinberger, author of another leading treatise, will be there. So will Bill Callison, the author of a treatise. Sitting out in the audience will be Paul Altman, famously a blue broth and Altman on limited partnerships, etc. It's the opportunity to hear from, ask questions of, and get to know, you know, personally, the top people in the field, because most of us have a lot of fun doing this, and the Institute's where we all get together and really break loose on it. It's October 20 and 21 in Arlington, Virginia. And and how do people register? If they go to the American Bar Association website and then click down to get to the Committee on LLCs, Partnerships, and Unincorporated Entities, it'll pop up there. If you have a problem doing that, send me an email and I'll send you the link. Well, I hope many of your listeners do. Tom, thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure we're going to be having more conversations in the future. Peter, thank you very much. You have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Divorce Roundtable. If you'd like to be the first to know about future episodes, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast manager. And if you enjoy the podcast, write a review and let others know. And as always, you can keep up with developments in business divorce by subscribing to my blog, New York Business Divorce, where I post a new article every Monday morning.